board. We are super thankful to have Lee, a missionary that we've supported, as I said, for eight years in Australia, and uh, his whole family here. Uh, it is encouraging the few times that we had to be connected, as Australia is quite a, a ways away. Um, but thank, thank you for being here and yeah. for preaching God's word from uh, a difficult passage, and glad to have you. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Yeah. And you can just hit off when it's... Yeah, when excellent. Um, yeah, how many of you have heard a, a sermon from this passage before? Anyone? Not a, yeah, my, all my kids have. <laughs> They're like, yes, like five times. Um, it's like the one you pull out, Dad. Um, how many of you have been in a situation where you've been um, put in a group of people that you haven't met before? Say at a conference or it's the first day of school or uh, it, 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 but, but they're going to want you to know each other by the end of the day, right? They're, they're gonna, the, the, you're going to be with them for a bit, so they want you to know some things about you. And so they create games called icebreakers, and you've participated in some icebreakers. I think one of the most um, intimidating icebreaker that can happen is when they ask you to share your most embarrassing moment, right? And, and you're sitting there, and, and you begin to... Feel your palms get sweaty, and if you're like me, your head gets sweaty, and you're sort of like, um, what embarrassing moments do I actually want to share with these groups of strangers? And you're sort of ticking the box, right, of going down the line. Well, not that one, and <laughs> never that one, and of course not that one, um, maybe this one. And you come up with an embarrassing moment that's actually not that embarrassing and you don't feel that shameful of in order to be able to share that in that space because you would never in a million years want anybody to know the thing that brought you the most shame, the most embarrassment. So most of us probably, it's like, oh, I walked in, uh, you know, to a door as I was leaving and it was, you had to, you know, push instead of pull. And I sat there for two minutes trying to get out the door. You know, that's not that bad, but it's definitely not something that you would not want. It's the thing that you want to keep most silent. I think today in the world, we have an epidemic of shame. Both of those who are imprisoned by shame of things that they don't want others to know about, and by those who are building themselves up by shaming others. Brene Brown talks about shame quite a bit. And she says one misconception is that shame and guilt are the same thing. She says what's interesting is guilt gets a really bad rap, but guilt is a very socially adaptive emotion. Guilt is, I did something bad. But shame is, I am that thing. Guilt is a cognitive dissonance, she says. Guilt says, I've done something or failed to do something that is aligned with my values, and I feel awful. I need to make amends, make a change, or hold myself accountable. I need to fix it. However, shame is a lot more damaging, she says. It says you are a bad person. And as a social species, she says shame is death. 
Shame is the fear of being unworthy of love. Connection, belonging, and the absence of love and connection and belonging as a human being in that there is always suffering, she says. Ed Welch, who's a pastor and a counselor in a book called Shame Interrupted, defines shame this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are an You are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed or humiliated. He says, or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human, you were treated as as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. This passage today actually shows us how shame is engaged in multiple levels. And it gives us some direction of how we can walk in the place of shame, not just for ourselves, but for those who might be encountering it around us. But before we jump into it, let me pray. Um, God, let these words be your words. Let these ideas be your ideas. Let these comments be your comments. If they aren't yours, let them burn up. Let them be easily forgotten. But if they are yours, let them quicken our hearts. Let them take deep root in who we are so that they will produce good good fruit and that they will bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, of course, this is a passage that you've never heard preached on because it's about a man who's holy and righteous and pure and has been brought forth by God to save humanity. And he lands and he plants a vineyard and grapes grow up and he lets them ferment and he gets a little saucy. And if you've ever been saucy, you know you get hot when you're saucy. And so he wants to cool down. And he's in his tent. Nobody should be there. Takes off his clothes. He's not asleep. He passed out. And his son walks in and sees him. And there's a reaction that happens then. This story then begins to unfold for us. And we see that, that there is shame that becomes present because we see that there are ways that, that Noah reacts to what his son does. See, when shame enters into our life, when it begins to walk into our sphere, when we begin to feel it as if we're no longer human or somebody has treated us less than human or we've been involved in something that has treated others as less than human, we have a reaction to that. I think the first reaction that we can see throughout all of Scripture is that when shame comes in, it can cause us to retreat. We see that happen in Adam and Eve right from the very beginning when the first instance of shame comes in. In Genesis 3, 8 and 10, it reminds us, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. 
You see, when shame enters into our life for whatever reason it is, one of the things that we want to do in our flesh is we want to retreat from that place. We want to hide. We don't want people to know about it. We cover it up. But in a way that eliminates anyone else coming into our lives to to walk with us in that place. Here God is walking in and Adam and Eve say, we can't let God see us naked. He created them. He'd seen them that way all along. He'd walk with them, but for some reason, now that they have this knowledge of good and evil, they they seem to think that that nakedness should be a place of shame, and so they want to hide themselves. And so the same is true for us, that when we begin to feel shame, it's very often that we begin to take the closest people around us who can walk with us in that place, and we begin to distance ourselves from them. Because we don't want them to know what we're feeling and and how we're being perceived in our own hearts, in our own places. The second way that shame operates in our lives and it might cause us to do something is, is it can cause us to reinvent. That's naming things something different. This usually happens when the shame is coming by something that we've done. It can also happen when it's something that has been done to us that causes that shame. We'll gaslight our own selves and say, that can't possibly be what took place. It must be something different. It must be my fault. Or or we'll look at something that that has caused shame in our life and, and say, I can't possibly change that thing. Either because I love doing it too much or because I just don't know how. To engage with it. And so it becomes much easier for us to take that thing that's causing us shame and to name it something else. In Isaiah 5, the prophet says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sights. Romans reminds us that God is revealing who he is in his hatred against sin and all ungodliness and unrighteousness because men and women have exchanged the thoughts of God for their own thoughts. And the book of Judges is filled with those who did what is right in their own minds. But in order to do that, in order to avoid shame, they claimed it to be right. When it was wrong, they've renamed it and reinvented it. But one of the ways that we probably try to shy away from the most, but that we can easily step into is the way that Noah responded to the shame of his son seeing him naked. He retaliated. He he pushes in and is forceful. Instead of flight, he fights. In that passage, we see Noah wake up being roused from his passed out state. He hears what Ham has done and he comes out and he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Now, if you remember just before, it says that Canaan is the son of Ham. Now, it's interesting here that Noah is not cursing Ham. He's cursing Canaan. There's a reason for that. See, Ham is not the firstborn. So he's going to get less of a blessing anyway. (laughs) He's not the firstborn, but Canaan is the firstborn. And so Noah says, 
I'm going to make sure your lineage is cursed. It's also important for us to put out that this is not God that is cursing Canaan. This is Noah. Because too often in the past, this particular passage, sadly, has been used by people who want to say that there are particular people who have been cursed with Canaan's curse. Hear this very clearly. God is not cursing anyone in this passage. He's not in the business of doing that. He's in the business of bringing restoration to those who have been cursed. He comes in here and Noah curses, he fights against. So think about yourself in that place. When you experience shame, that place where you feel less than human because of something you've done or less than human. And when I say human, let me define that for you. As God created you in his image, as an image bearer of God. To be truly human is to be the mirror of God. To show forth his mercy and love and grace and purity and truth and justice. And so in those places when we feel less than human, because of what we've done or what somebody has done to us or because we've been associated with someone, what's your default response? that place that your flesh pushes you to? Is it to run and hide? Is it to rename? Or is it to push against? Because it's in that place, I think that we begin to recognize why Ham and why Japheth and Shem have different responses as a community. Because see, there's the individual response to shame around us and within us. But then there's the community response that we have. See, Ham comes in and he sees his dad. And he goes out and he talks to his brothers about it. Now, this is the case with the Bible. (laughs) We don't get everything that we said. Because that would be a huge book. But we know it must be something that's bad. Why? Well, because Noah curses his son. He's so upset by it. And, and, Ham, and Shem and Japheth immediately go in and cover their dad. So it could be that he came out and he said, guys, you are not going to believe this. The man that God chose is in their buck. Just start. Like and passed out. Like he got into the wine and he got into the wine. Can you believe that? What a loser. It could be that he went out there and said, guys, you got to go look. You're not going to believe this. It's awful. What an unholy person he is. How could we ever follow him again? We actually don't know what he did. But what we do know is that he didn't think or move towards walking with his dad in that place that shame could arise. Instead, he chose to take away Noah's dignity so that he could be elevated in his own. The word cancel culture is thrown around like crazy. People use it a lot, both for good and bad reasons. One of my favorite artists who happens to be, who I think is the the best secular theologian that we have in the world today, is an artist named Nick Cave. 
Great music, by the way. Particular taste. And he has a blog that people write him questions. And they've done this over the last eight years. It's called The Red Hand Files. And, and somebody wrote him, a person named Francis, and asked him about cancel culture. And this is what he said. Francis, you've asked about cancel culture. And as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. It's once honorable attempts to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of its beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity of redemption. It has become quite literally bad religion run amok. See, here's the thing that Ham does by not covering and bringing dignity to his dad. He doesn't allow a place for repentance and restoration. He says, in this moment, this defines all of who you are. And you are unworthy. And so there's no beauty and no mercy and no movement towards the image of God that was found in Noah so that it would shine through and receive that mercy. But Shem and Japheth are different. They hear what their brother has said to them. And they say, we can't possibly leave our dad like this. And so they grab a cloak and they put it on their shoulders and they back in so as not to shame him any further, to keep his dignity in place. And they gently stoop down and they lay the blanket over him. And then they walk out and they wait. They wait for their dad to come to and come out. And granted, when their dad comes to, he doesn't necessarily run to a really good place. But perhaps after that, he's able to say to his sons, thank you for showing me dignity. And they're able to say to him, you are worthy of dignity. We love you. In spite of you getting wasted. We want you to know that we see you as who you are in God. The one who was picked to save humanity. The one who ultimately becomes an image of Christ for us. And we could hear that and we can go, that's great, good. That's what we should do. We should be those who carry blankets and put it on people. But the reality is it's very difficult for us to be those who walk in that way. Because too often we are too offended or too afraid to be honest with those around us. We ourselves are walking in a place of shame so deeply that it becomes so easy for us to be offended by those who do something wrong or that we deem as wrong around us. That we can't engage their humanity being truly human in the image of God. Or we're too fearful of those around us who might look at us as we engage with people in shame and say, oh, oh, you can't talk to that person. You can't be with them. So how is it even possible for us to do that then? How is it possible for us to walk in the way of Shem and Japheth? Well, the beautiful thing is this, that Jesus Christ, the one who has no shame whatsoever, 
The one who is holy and pure and right and true and just and merciful. The one who is beautiful upon beautiful. The one who holds no shame at all became shame on the cross. Isaiah Speaking of Jesus to come says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels. And Paul puts it more succinctly for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness. Of God. You see, it's in this place of shame that we are able to see that Jesus, the one who has no shame, became our shame so that we can stand in the dignity that is being created in the image of God. To be fully human, no matter what occurs to us, no matter what we have done. Because he accepts us back and brings us with his mercy through his salvation that is on the cross. So that then we are able to engage with those around us who are in shame and cover them up because we know what covers them. It is the blood of Jesus. Not fighting against those who are shaming us. Not renaming the thing that is causing us shame. Not hiding from it either. Being honest about it. And saying this is truth. And I need the truth of Jesus to cover it up. So today you might be sitting here and you might be trapped in shame. And I want you to hear these four things. Remember that shame is never the destination, but it's a prompting that can move us to a God who pursues us with steadfast love. That in shame, we can recognize there's something wrong here, but it should never stop us but move us to recognize that God is steadfastly pursuing us with his steadfast love. I want you to hear that in Christ, God has covered all things. Repeat that. Christ has covered all things. And you are new and can stand unashamed. 1 John 1.19 says this, but if we confess our sins to God, he can always be trusted to forgive us. And he takes away our sin. You might not believe this, but there is a community of fellow ragamuffins, 'er ne'er-do-wells, recovering hypocrites who have discovered God's mercy and steadfast love, and they're ready to walk with you. To be fair, (laughs) they're not always great at it. And many of them feel shame about that. But God in his mercy has drawn those people together, placed them in particular locations, in particular places, for particular purposes to reach out to those who need a very universal Christ who will love them. And more importantly than that is that community waiting for you. It's this, that they need you as well. See, because your story and who you are in Christ Jesus is vital for the wholeness of the body of Christ in whatever particular location you happen to be at. That they are incomplete in how they are imaging Christ to the world without you present. 
And that's both here and Fremantle and globally. So please hear that mercy is racing towards you. And for those of you who hear, and, and you might not be trapped in shame, you, you, you kind of are on the outskirts of it right now, but you know that there are those who are in shame that are near you. Can I encourage you in this way? Can you practice redressing in the righteousness of God? Can you acknowledge the thing that's causing them shame? You have to be honest about it. Be truthful. But then in that moment, be able to walk with them in that place and and let them redress. Because what they're doing is showing their nakedness. And build them into the righteousness of God. His beautiful robe. His beautiful headdress. Saying, yes, that's true. That happened. That took place. You did that. That was done to you. You've been involved in something. But God. But God in his mercy has called you something different. He is dressing you in a new way. Put off those tattered, torn clothes and pick up the white robe of God's mercy and righteousness. Can I encourage you to practice godly shame that empowers relationships and turns people to the kindness of God that leads to repentance? See, here's the problem. We, we often, when we think of shame, we think of it as a thing that needs to be brought with force and conviction. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so when we begin to recognize that there is shame, we need to see that as a way that God is working in that person's heart and life or our own lives in order to bring about his kindness that brings us to repentance. That that we fall so in love with the mercy of God and his gentleness and care that we run headlong into it and we want to bring those with us. In order to do that, I believe we have to practice repentance in order to lead to a culture of repentance and restoration. That means when we begin to recognize the the junk in our own lives, (laughs) the dirtiness and the, the hearts, that are turned in on themselves, that we must quickly learn how to repent of that, to name it and claim it, (laughs) to name it and say, this is where I am broken. This is where I've sinned. This is where I've set myself on my throne and be specific. You and I got in an argument because I think I'm right and you're wrong. But in that, I've decided to make you less human and think that all of your ideas are stupid. Please forgive me for making you less human. I need to repent of that. And lastly, then we need to practice forgiveness. The kind that flows and follows after God's example. Not some mere transactional forgiveness. Where we become the arbiter and the judge of whether or not that person has repented in the right way. You see, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Not when we've got it halfway right. We'd have done absolutely nothing correctly to gain that forgiveness. And so we can't hold out forgiveness and say, I want to forgive you, but you got three other things to do. When someone says to you, I need to repent, 
They might not know everything they need to repent of. They might not have a clue of all the damage that they've done to you. But you have to say, yes, I forgive you. Listen, that doesn't mean that you have to be in relationship with those who are abusing you. It does mean that you have to hold out repentance, forgiveness for them. Because that's what the Father did for you. Doesn't mean that there will be a restoration of that relationship. There might not ever be. There shouldn't be in many cases. But this transactional forgiveness will only stymie your ability to receive the forgiveness that the Father is wanting to give to you. In that same red hand file, Nick Cave goes on to say this. Mercy is a value that should be at the heart of any functioning and tolerant society. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within our society through our mutual fallibility. Without without mercy, a society loses its soul and it devours itself. It is only possible as we stand in Christ and the mercy he pours out on our shame.